Continuing this morning in Amos chapter 5 in our study there, beginning to look at verses through 1 through 15 this morning, lamentation. Now, just to kind of bring us all back up to speed, the condition that we see the people of Israel are facing in the book of Amos is the sin of Jeroboam the first and all that he led Israel into. Not simply demonic paganism, but instead fearing the worship of the true God in Jerusalem would lead the heart of the people of Israel back to the house of David. Jeroboam refashioned God in the manner that he thought he needed Him to be. Doing so, he blasphemed. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, it says that King took counsel. And he made two calves of gold and he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your Elohim. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the people, they quickly fell into the vilest of depravity. A very particular form of madness, believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth that was clearly set before him. And a couple of hundred years later, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, just two years before the earthquake, Amos, the shepherd from Tekoa, did not hear, but instead saw a word from the Lord. For the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The reality is is that when our Lord roars, His people come to Him trembling. But the wicked will harden their hearts. And when they do, a very partial God will show no partiality. For He roars at Syria and Philistia, at Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab, even at Judah themselves. But His particular focus here through the prophet of Amos is nothing less than the nation of Israel proper. For they are indeed a particular people set apart particularly to Him. The psalmist says in 147 that He declares His Word to Jacob and His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. Mount Zion, the reality is is that with much blessing comes much responsibility. The book of Amos teaches us that there is an anger that comes out of love that is stronger than any that ever came out of hate. For it is able to accomplish and to preserve the end for which it was sent. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, he writes, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And you look at Amos and you go, man, in Amos, God tends to be a very angry God. You better believe He's an angry God. And the reason He's angry is because of the depth of His heart. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And so Amos sees a word And having seen the Word, Amos publishes the Word. And he says, Hear this Word, you fat cows. Shocking to modern audiences. Shocking to ancient audiences. Nobody likes to be called a fat cow. But it's not simply an insult. It's not designed simply to grab attention but instead to speak to a spiritual reality amongst the people. Because out of all the people, He knew them. And He knew them in a way that He knew no one else. He knew them in the intimacy of His own heart. Because of that, they will meet Him. They will see Him face to face. Yahweh Himself. 
the God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of war. Prepare to meet your God, O you fat cows, the prophet says. Not because He doesn't know you, but because He does. And because He does know you in the day of His meeting, there will be great lamentation. This morning, beginning in Ezekiel chapter 5, in verses 1 through 2, Amos continues and he says, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Hear this word. Take it up over you in a very particular way. Taking up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel, fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. The word of the Lord that Amos saw that he declares to these very people, to these very ones that God knew amongst all others, to these very ones that he insults his fat cows, the word that he saw that he proclaims to them is a word of lamentation. The word in the Hebrew here is kenah. It means an elegy or a dirge. A song of the dead. It's only used just a couple of dozen times throughout the Old Testament. It always has the heaviest of gravity. And I would have you note that God is not gloating over their destruction. And I point that out because He's just been very insulting. I mean, he has. No, I mean, he was being insulting on purpose. It's because they deserve to be insulted. But in light of the fact that he has just been very insulting to them, we might tend in our flesh to assume, therefore, that he is gloating over their punishment. And the fact of the matter is that he is not gloating over their punishment. Instead, he is doing something not nearly so shallow, but something with much greater depth. If we look at this concept of lamentation, and I want to take a few minutes to do a little aside here this morning and to, to kind of exegete this out a little bit and, and, and get a good idea of, of what is being said. We need some basis, we need some foundation lest we think this is simply a eulogy or an insult. When it is actually neither. It's a lamentation. And so what is a lamentation in the view of Scripture? A lamentation in the view of Scripture is a complex dirge that flows forth from a complex heart. A complex dirge, it is a song for the dead. But it is a complex dirge, not a simple one, that flows forth not from a simple heart, but from a complex heart. And we've talked about this before, and I want to mention it again this morning. Oftentimes, in our flesh, we fall in as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We fall into the exact opposite circumstance that Scripture describes. Scripture says if you're going to come to Christ, if you're going to come to God, if you're going to come to eternal life, you must come like a little child... And you must come to God as though He is the Father. And the children are simple and the Father is complex. But we want to stand this on its head. And so we often describe God in very simplistic terms with no context. And people will read books like Angus and they'll go, well, I just don't see how that could be. We all know that God is love. Friends, God is love. There is no love like God. He is more loving than any other loving can be. He is holy in His lovingness. And yet, if you think that's all He is, you have a skewed picture of His reality. Because He is also, listen here, you fat cows. And that is not in contradiction to His love, any more than His love is in contradiction to that, but they are in service to each other in the holy nature of His character. 
We often want to flip it upside down. We want to make God the simpleton, and we're the complex being that has all these competing emotions that's just trying to figure it all out. Friends, we are the child, and He is the Father. Lamentation is a complex dirge that springs forth from a complex heart. And when the Lord Himself that you are about to meet says the word that you need to hear that I speak over you is one of lamentation, it is going to be the most complex that it can be. But in order to bring it down just a little bit, where we can kind of get our hands on it, you know, bring it down to kind of you know shoe tread level here, good old ground floor, I think we see a, a very understandable, very relatable picture in a guy that was a man like us, but had a heart that was after God's own. I think we see one of the clearest pictures of what complex lamentation looks like come forth from King David. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you do, I want you to look with me in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now, if you're familiar with the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, just like 1 and 2 Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'll know that these books were originally not two separate books. They were all one book. But when way back in the day, when we moved from scrolls um, to bound books, codexes as they were called, they didn't have the machines they have today. The paper was a lot thicker than it is today, and they weren't able to stitch it. And so those books were too big to bind into one piece, so they just split them in half. And in first and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. They chose in 1 and 2 Samuel to make the dividing line between the two new books out of the one original as the death of King Saul. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 31 in verse 1 through 13, the death of Saul is recorded. And it says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Mount Yeshua and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him. He was badly wounded by the archers. Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And the next day, when the Philistines came out to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shem. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done this to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall of Beth Shem. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk, under an oak tree in Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. Such was the demise of the first king of all Israel and all of his progeny. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And once again, this is not actually two separate books. This is an immediate response on the part of David's heart. In 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1 we see David's response. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, 
David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered him, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man said to him, Kids, take a lesson. Don't embellish to try to make yourself look good. You never know how it will be taken. If you're going to die, die for the truth. How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who was told who told him said, by, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. There was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for the anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. That is a very crafty tale from a man who is nothing other than a grave robber. David took hold of his clothes and he tore them and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he said, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it? that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And then David called one of the young men and said, Go and execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now David is about to do what poet-warrior kings do. In the midst of the battle, he is about to wax poetic. And I want you to understand that the lamentation that he will raise up is extremely complex. Let us consider just for a moment the history of David and Saul. David is mourning for Saul. Man, this dude walks in. He has a great story to tell. Set, tries to make himself the hero. It sounds good. He's, his clothes are all tattered up. He's got dirt on his head. I mean, he looks like he's been in a scrum. Probably had been. He says, here's the story, man. Saul was in bad shape, but he was clinging to life. He asked me to do him a favor. I did it, and I've brought all of this to you. You know, aren't I a good guy in the midst of a very sticky situation? And David rips his clothes, which is a lot bigger deal than me or you ripping a t-shirt today. He rips his clothes, and he mourns. He mourns over a man that literally for years has made his life a living hell. He mourns for a man that has hunted him the way a man hunts a fox. That has caused him to live battered and hungry without home or place in the caves and the rocks of the ground. That tried to run him through with a spear that would give him no quarter when David saved his own life. He mourns over a man 
who sought a necromancer, the darkest of black magic, in order to bring God's man down when all he was trying to do was what God told him to do. And it comes to him and he mourns over him and says, kill him. Because there's something bigger and more complex here. He has laid His hands to the Lord's anointed. He has come against the people of Israel that God has promised Himself to. David's heart breaks not just over the... And look, he doesn't do it over Jonathan now. He's mourning over Jonathan too. He's going to talk about that. But he specifically says, I'm killing you because you dared lay your hand on the Lord's anointed. mourns over a man that was his enemy because his heart is breaking that he was his enemy. Man, I long for that kind of depth. Because i got to be honest with you, if I look at David and I put myself in that position, when you become my enemy, the way that he become David's enemy, when you threaten me, when you threaten my wife, when you threaten those I love, buddy, I will make you my enemy and I won't mourn over And that's because I fall woefully short of the man that was after God's own heart. Man, Dave's got some complex juice going. This guy literally tried to skewer him. And it wasn't an isolated incident. He sought the help of demons to destroy him. And yet David mourns. And this is the lamentation. This is the kinah that he lifts up. A complex dirge out of a complex heart. Verse 17, David lamented with this lamentation. He lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. This is private pain, but it shouldn't stay private. This ought to be published. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. That's the Philistines. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. That's exactly what they were doing. As soon as they cut his head off and strung his body up, they sent people to tell the quote-unquote good news into all the lands of the Philistines. And David says, fire on that. Lest, tell it not in Gath and publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, and the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life, in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. He was talking about a man who was trying to put his head on a stake. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. After all that Saul had done to him, David mourned him. Because David saw a grander, more glorious reality, David wasn't a simpleton. The reality is, is that the lamentation that is spoken of in Scripture is both anger and sadness. It is both furious rage and mourning that comes 
the dual result of a singular reality. It is anger and it is sadness that simultaneously spring from a broken heart. Brother, if you've ever had a broken heart, it will make you sadder than any other sadness. And if you've ever had a broken heart, it will make you angry than any other anger. Lamentation is the anger and the sadness that is the result of the broken heart. If we're going to properly understand the way that the Lord is moving in Amos chapter 5 and indeed throughout the rest of the book, we must reconcile, we must recognize both sides of the coin. He is angry. And He is in mourning. He is angry. For love has an anger greater than can ever come from hatred. Let's continue in Amos chapter 5, verse 3. Follow no more to rise. Verse 2, context. Follow no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, for none to raise her up. Why? For thus says the Lord. You want to talk about anger? Here it is. You want to talk about judgment? The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And the city that went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Those are some disturbing stats. People ask, do you think COVID is judgment? Sure I do. How could it not be? We just read two chapters back. Does disaster come on a city unless the Lord sends it? Sure it is. But guys, we're going to be honest with ourselves. You have a mortality rate that is a fraction of a percent. So if you want to talk about judgment... What the Lord is talking about in Amos chapter 5 compared to what we've been going through, that's not even, the band's not even warming up. That's the woodwinds soaking their reeds. Because this deal kills 90%. What's coming, what He is sending in His anger, what He is sending has a mortality rate of 90%. You understand that when you extend that to the people around you, that means if something of this magnitude was to come upon us, if you were one, there was, and here's how it goes, right? We're going to roll the ten-sided dice. Roll number one, you're dead. Number two, you're dead. Number three, you're dead again. Number four, you're dead. Number five, you're dead. Six dead, seven dead, eight dead, nine dead. Number ten, hey, you win, you're alive. If you can call that winning, because when you put that all the way around you in every direction you know, there's a likelihood that if you are the one that survives that scourge, you know no one on a first name basis anymore. Annihilation is what's coming. Buddy, that's anger. Don't tell me he's not angry. Brother, that is wrath. That is the consuming fire. And even when he does tease them with a glimmer of hope, he just won't let go of the fact that he is so incredibly angry with them. He just keeps putting it back in their face. This references back to the hey, you fat cows. Look in, uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 4, 4 through 13. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Okay, hey man. A little bit of hope here where we're going somewhere, right? This is good. Seek me and live. Do not seek me in Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall surely come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Lest He break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with, not, with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down the righteous to the earth, he who made the Pallades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Anytime he starts talking like that, Job-level stuff is coming. The Lord, Yahweh, is His name. 
who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortresses. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trampled on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, I know. You who afflicted the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Now, midway there, you've got some very kind of Jobian kind of talk. And right at the end, you've got some very Paulinian Romans chapter 9, who are you to talk back to your God kind of talk. The, the shut your mouth because the days are evil. And what that means is, is I'm, I'm not really making much of an offer to give you any hope. I'm raising it up so I can remind you of all the reasons you don't get it. angry. Lamentation. It's a complex dirge coming out of a complex heart. It is both sadness and anger. It is both mourning and rage because the heart of the one that is feeling it is the heart that is broken. The reason he's angry Man, is God that angry? Yeah, is that angry? Why is he that angry? He's that, he's that angry because his heart's broke. That's why. Look at the way he starts this back in verse 2. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel. Fallen no more to rise is not just anybody and it's not just any Israel. It's the virgin Israel. It's his virgin Israel. If you want to shed some light on what's going on in the heart of the Creator, man, we want we want to do that. As a matter of fact, I think one of the highest compliments that we've ever received as a church is when people say things like, you know, um, I've learned something about who the character the character of God and who He actually is. Not just the things he says and the things he requires, but but who he really is. The reason he's so angry is because his heart is broken. The reason his heart is broken is because of the one who is acting the way they're acting. The virgin Israel. Not just any Israel, but the virgin Israel, not just any virgin, but his virgin. He sheds light on this concept in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 16, verses 1 through 26. Ezekiel chapter 16, in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Now, just for context here, Amos was prophesying about what was going to happen when. The city of a thousand was left a hundred, and the city of a hundred was left ten. Ezekiel is prophesying about after that happened. So Amos lived before and was talking about what was coming. Ezekiel lived after and talked about what had happened and then what was yet to come in the future. And so he says this Again, the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord, God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. That's like half a degree off of you fat cows. Same, same deal. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. 
nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. There was your condition. When I passed by you, and saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown and you were naked and bare. And I passed by you again and saw you and behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Friends, if Amos has been an introduction to the Old Testament for you and you want something to study, I would encourage you to look into Ezekiel chapter 16 and figure out the depth of what it means when he says, I spread the corner of my garment over you. You'll be there for years. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This virgin who was now grown in an age who had been cast out in the field in her blood as an infant that he had saved and miraculously caused to live had came to the point where he was going to vow to her, where he was going to enter into covenant with her, where he was going to do the very thing that we have marriage as a reminder of with her. She was his. And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil and I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather and I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck and put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. They all get jammed up when the girls get nose rings. Look, if it was good enough for God's virgin, it's good enough for them. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen and silk, embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth from among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declared the Lord God. You want to know why he's, you want to know why he's both sad and angry? You want to know why he's both mourning and wrathful? Here's why. Because his heart is broke. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never nor shall be that's a bold statement. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given to you and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. And my bread that I gave to you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. So it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had bore to me, He says. Not to your husbands, but to me. And these you sacrifice to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You've built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. 
the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiply your whoring, provoking me to anger. Is he angry? You better bet your life on it he's angry. Why is he angry? Because they broke his heart. That's why. This is not some wrathful God that has a list of rules and you broke one so you're dead. This is the being with the biggest heart that has ever existed and it is weeping. It is mourning over the rebellion and the sin of His beloved. It is mourning over the fact that He gave them everything that was good and they spurned it. Is He angry? Yeah, He's angry. He's angry because His heart is broken. Lamentation. Now listen to me. This complex dirge that comes from a complex heart ends not in furious anger or in sadness. It's not where it ends. It contains both of those by the bucket full. But that's not where it ends. Where it ends is in a plea. A plea that if responded to will satisfy both the anger and the sadness. It'll fix both, man. And you can do this. You understand the logic. You can fix both with the response to a single plea because both are coming from the same source. The sadness is coming out of a broken heart. The anger is coming out of a broken heart. And so it doesn't end with the sadness and it doesn't end with the anger. Now listen, in our fallen flesh, me or you, we'll let it end that way. We'll decide on the one which we prefer. Men, we'll decide on the one which we prefer. I'm so injured that I'll just do anything to get you right. I'll hand over the keys of the kingdom. Or I am so angry that I will destroy with no check or balance because you have wronged me. God doesn't end in either of those places. What He ends with is a plea that will satisfy both. It will satisfy the anger and it will satisfy the hurt. And here it is. Verse 14, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of war, will be with you as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of war, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. You know what he says? Is come back. Come back. And in doing so, assuage your guilt. Satisfy my anger. End my mourn. Friends, that's not a side of God that you see very often, but there it is right on the page. He loves His bride with a ferocity of love that is able to produce an anger that makes wrath look paltry. And it is so incredibly powerful because it is able to retrieve that which has provoked it. Guys, we look at this and we go, man, a thousand go out, a hundred come back. 
Hunter go out, 10 comes back, 90% mortality rate. That's some rough stuff, friend. When you're the one who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night and calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, Yahweh is His name. When that's you, if this thing was being motivated by anger or even by simple justice, apart from the broken heart, the mortality rate would be 100%. It would be destruction in Nilo. That means into nothing. What do you do with this? What do you do with an omnipotent Creator who is so legitimately hurt that He's this furious? I think there's a lot of application. Obviously. This is the people of God. Ultimately, this is we fall into the category that He is speaking of. Or at least we have the opportunity to. And to some degree, we've all walked this course. Not to the extent that they have. He says very specifically that they did something that was never done before or again. But we've all played this sport. Maybe not the majors. We've all been part of the co-ed team. What do we do with this? I think I may offer a few pastoral thoughts this morning. I think we are way too quick, way too often to come in with an easy answer. And I'll give some personal testimony here. In my flesh, I have a tendency to err in giving an answer to the question that is being asked before the person asking it has even finished the question. I will answer before you get to the proverbial question mark. In my youth, I prided myself on being ahead of the game and knowing what you were going to say before you said it. As I grow older, I see it more of a hindrance. In reality, sometimes people really don't, sometimes they need an answer, sometimes really more than anything else, they just need to hear themselves ask the question. It's a reality. Man, we want to get to the answer. We want to have, and it's not just me, we want to take this book and reduce it and boil it down to talking points. We love we love a quantified salvation. As a matter of fact, we produce salvific equations and we teach them as curriculum. The ABCs of salvation isn't that nifty. Makes great sense. Admit, believe, confess. Something easy to remember, we can teach a kid in five minutes. The problem is, is you can't teach this in five minutes. And if he had wanted something you can teach in five minutes, he would have given it to us. Right? And so this is the way we approach things. Here's, here's a problem. What's the problem? There, we're sinners and judgment comes for sin and nobody wants to be judged. Okay, man, how do I avoid judgment? Here's the thing you do. You admit you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus Christ is the answer and then you go confess it. Except they don't do confess anymore because somehow that was, I don't know, it was too much of a downer or something. So now it's commit. Because the, the one thing historically the Southern Baptists had held to in the doctrines of grace was, was the, the permanence of salvation. And, and now we even want to take a little bit of that to our own. So we've got to commit. Man. The problem is, is this. is What we see here in Amos would lead us to believe, and, and all over the Bible from front to back, but this is where we're at for the day, is... While we may 
recognize a problem from our standpoint as being the fact that God judges sinners and we are one and I don't want to be judged. And I would rather live than die and I would rather go to heaven than hell and I would rather have Christ than the devil. The reality is, is that salvation is not solving for why. It's not an equation that needs to be solved. It's not a judicial charge to be argued. It's not an electron valence field that needs to be balanced. It's a miracle that is springing forth out of the broken heart of God. You understand, that's why He's saving them, right? Is because His heart is broken that they're perishing. Why would you send your son to die to pay the price for this lot? Because your heart's broken that they're perishing. Why, why would you... Dude, why would you sacrifice yourself to re retrieve these rebels? Because your heart is broken because they're rebelling. That's why. Salvation is not an equation that needs to be solved. It's not, it, it, it's, it doesn't need to be balanced. It is the miracle that springs forth from the broken heart of God. It is Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 39, going, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Man, that right there sounds like grounds for anger because it is. We don't stop there. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He's angry because his heart's broken. See, your houses are left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, You won't see me again. He says, You won't see me again until you get it right. This is the plea of verse 14 and 15. Love good, hate evil. Turn from your wicked ways and return to Me. Why is their house desolate? Because He made it desolate. And yet, how often would He have gathered them to Himself? Friends, I think the application is this. If God's heart is breaking over our sin, so should ours. So should ours. For too long, a cheap salvation has been preached from the pulpits in America that allows us to think, and I'm talking about myself, but we all grew up with this. There's been a cheap salvation that has been preached from the pulpits in America that allows us to look at the sacrifice that Christ made, the sin that we have, see Him cover that, and somewhat like Forrest Gump, go, well, that's good. One less thing. If His heart is breaking, so should ours be. We don't need to be in a hurry to come in to answer and, and solve for why. We don't need to be coming and go, oh hey, listen, you got a, you got a little bit of you got some man, you got some some conviction. Got a little conviction going here, man. Here's the formula that will fix that. No. If God is content to be brokenhearted over you until you are returned to Him, then we should be content to be broken over our sin until He returns us to Himself. Don't get in a hurry. Be willing to eat it. Man, we, we talk about the Gospel so often like it's, man, I've got some guilt and some shame and I just want to make that stuff go away. Listen, 
man, the gospel will make that stuff go away. No doubt about it. But man, if you're getting into the gospel just because you don't want to feel ashamed for your sin, you're in it for the wrong reasons, friend. It's about something a whole lot bigger than that. Ezekiel chapter 2. Almost done. Ezekiel chapter 2. The Lord talks about it to Ezekiel like this. He says this in verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. Now, he's just seen the glory of the Lord that has just all but destroyed him. And so the Lord's going to stand him up. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel to the nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. I send you to the virgin Israel. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I sent you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and sit and you sit on scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. You can take all of that and pretty much stick it under the header from Amos, the Lord has spoken who can but prophesy. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. See, when we say eat it every day, you didn't think it had a scriptural background, but it does. Eat what I give you. Okay, Lord, what are you going to give us? What are you going to give the prophet? When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, the scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. You know, man, Okay, eat it every day. Doesn't sound so good. What are you going to eat? You're going to eat the scroll I'm going to give you. And you understand, the scroll is what's the rest of recorded in Ezekiel, right? I mean, that, that's the scroll. He's internalizing it. It's going to go down and it's going to come back out. What is it? Lord, what, what is this thing that you would have me to consume? Lamentation and mourning and woe. That doesn't sound like a very appetizing three-course meal. And yet, he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. It's not a salad bar. You don't get to pick and choose. Eat whatever you come across. Whoever I say I am, whoever I say you are, whoever I say they are, whoever, whatever I say I'm going to do, eat it. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Now here's the wild part. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now how about that? Okay, here's a scroll. You're going to eat it. A scroll? Are you sure? Yes. This is not a Swiss cake roll. Here's a scroll. You're going to eat it. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Eat it. Fill your stomach with it. Eat whatever you find here. This is my mama's table when I was a kid. When you filled your plate and she said, you miss getting so-and-so. That was not an observation. That was a command. Eat whatever you find here. Get on down and get with it. 
What is it? Lamentation and mourning and woe. Oh, yay. It's like okra and butter beans and turnips. Not the greens, the actual root. I need the greens. Nasty. And then he does it. He does it. And because what the Lord is doing while being full of anger and full of mourning is not a thing that is of anger or of mourning, but instead is of a broken heart that just wants His own faithful. Because that's where it's coming from. This prefix menu amazingly is as sweet as honey in His mouth. So you don't know about application. What do you do with this? Man, the question is this. Is do you trust the Lord? Do you trust Him to no matter how bitter the lamentation is, and friends in Amos, it's pretty bitter. Do you trust Him out of the motivation of His own heart to be able to take that truth and make it sweet? To be able to take the very thing that is motivating His anger and motivating His warning that is motivating the mourning of His very soul. Do you trust Him in His goodness to take that and not go one of the weird two ways that humans go with it where they become a broken little puppy or a raging lunatic but instead say, here's the way it gets fixed. And if you will come, I'll fix it. Do you trust Him that much? Do you trust Him to take lamentation more than what make it as sweet as honey in your mouth. The prophets did. Ezekiel did. And this guy lived to think of, like, other than Jeremiah, there was no other prophet more despised than Ezekiel. Man, nobody wanted what he was serving. Except for him. Sweet as honey. Friends, the reality of Amos chapter 5, hear this word that I take up over you in Lamentation, O house of Israel, and all of the stuff that comes after that. The anger, the destruction, the 90% mortality rate. The only way that you get to verse 14 and 15, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Jacob. You can't get verse 14 and 15 in isolation. You only get verse 14 and 15 by walking with God straight through verses 1 through 13. That's it. That's it. And if you do, friends, you should trust Him. It will be sweet to you. Micah, one of the other quote-unquote minor, that just means short prophets, said the same concept this way. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, for I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. You know what? Okay, back here to Amos. The prudent know when to shut their mouths because the days are evil. So when the Lord comes to you and says, hear this lamentation, woe to you, and, and it just starts hammering you for, for 13 verses, what you need to do is shut up. That's literally what He's saying. I mean, like, grammatically. The, the prudent know when to shut up. Because it's one thing for Dad to run his mouth. It's one thing for me to run my mouth. It's another thing when God starts running His. The prudent know when to be quiet because the days are evil. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Why? Because I deserve it. 
That's why. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. How long will you bear it? Here's the beauty of a Lord who acts in lamentation out of a broken heart. I will bear it until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon His vindication. Man, Micah, Amos, Ezekiel, they're all speaking the same language because it's all coming from the same place. Man, these guys are eating it every day and it is some bitter, lamenting, woe, and mournful stuff and yet it is sweet to them because they know who their God is, they know where it's coming from, and therefore they know how it will end. They know how it will end. And so he says, I will bear the vindication. I will keep my mouth shut. I will listen to the charge he has against me. Why? Because he's right. That's why. Man, you get to talking about sin from the pulpit today. Before long, people are going, man, you're really coming down. You're bringing people down, man. Listen, it's true. It's true. It's true of me. It's true of you. What do you do with it, man? You bear his indictment until the day until the moment when he acts on your behalf it's exactly what's going to happen to Israel chapter 5 gets deep folks we're about to dive off into stuff everything thus far has been stuff that hasn't that has already happened we're about to get to the stuff that hasn't happened yet there's a day coming when He will vindicate them. When His broken heart will be satisfied. When the mourning will be answered. When the anger will be answered. And He will have His virgin Israel washed white and sparkling and without blemish in the very sanctifying Word of God. Do you trust Him to make it good? That's the application. You trust Him. We don't need to short-circuit it. We don't need to solve for the lie. You say, well, Pastor, don't people need to believe? Amen. Don't they need to, don't they need to, to, to admit? Amen. Don't they need to confess? Amen. This isn't a computer game where you put in the right number of keystrokes in the right order and you win the game. That's not how it works. This is the heart of a holy God it can only be approached as such. And if you approach it that way, if you would just take what He gives you, no matter how unappealing it may look at the moment, if you would just take what He gives you, and if you will come to Him and take what He has, it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So how can that be sweet? Is He going to change it? No, He's not going to change it at all. He's going to change you. He's going to change you. That's what it changes. This is the new creation. You need to come to Christ. Take what He has. It's going to be scary. It's okay. Take what He has. Sweet as honey. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We love Your Word. Lord, we thank You for it, for Your goodness and Your glory that are in it. Lord, where it speaks difficult things to men, Lord, we thank You because we know that out of great difficulty comes great victory and Lord, we give you all the credit and the glory for it. It is not our doing, it is your own. Lord, we pray that you would be drawing men and women, boys and girls to you even now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.